Hi, my name is Amy. I'm an alcoholic. And before I get started, uh, for the people that are kind of in my group and some of the girls that I sponsor um, around their milestones, I I give them their marbles back. And you know, Aaron just celebrated one year, and I wanted to give him one of his marbles back. <laughs> and uh, you know, I've seen a great growth in this case. To, to watch the little bit of growth that I've gotten to see in this kid over the past few months. Um, so I'm going to start out with a couple of things out of the big book. I'm going to start on page 29. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> we got a long drive down here. Um, Actually, I'm going to start off on page. You know, I'm glad that the big book tells us how to get up here and tell our story. It says, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. You know, I got schooled by one of the big speakers that said that, you know, most of us say what it's like now. And I'm supposed to get up here and talk about what I'm like now. And talk about how I've established a relationship with my higher power. And I hope to do that for you guys tonight. Um, my childhood was tumultuous at best. Um, my father was an alcoholic, and my mother was a religious fanatic, so I was in church all the time, and you know there was a lot of fighting, a lot of chaos going on in my home, and I, I don't think that either one of those things made me an alcoholic, but when I was 14, my dad died from cirrhosis of the liver. And so from that day on, I always said, I'm never gonna drink because I don't wanna end up like my dad. My dad was very violent. And I met this guy when I was 14, the day my dad in, went into the hospital, and um, I decided that I was going to go hang out with this guy for a while and ended up uh, getting in a bunch of trouble being out after curfew and, you know, doing all this stuff sober, but just being out, just being crazy, wanting to get away from my mom. And I can remember from the time that I was little just hating my mother. I was probably seven the first time that I can remember back to just not wanting to be around her. I would have done anything to get away from her. When I was 15, I got pregnant with my first daughter and I got married. My mom signed papers for me to go and get married and, uh, and the judge signed papers as well. When I was 16, I had my first daughter. When I was 17, I got divorced because I married that guy at 15. And when I was 18, I started drinking. And it wasn't an easy thing for me to start drinking. When I was 17, I was hanging out in Colorado Springs. I was hanging out with a bunch of guys from the military. So it was me and a bunch of guys coming out from B Street Gate. And um, my friend at the time, he said, Amy, it's okay. Don't even worry about your dad being an alcoholic. I'll protect you. And famous last words, you know, for me that he came up to me and, and he said, I'm going to go out and get four Jack Daniels Lynchburg lemonades. You'll be just fine. I'll watch you. We'll stay in the house. You can have two. I'll have two. And from the very first time that I drank, I was a, uh, a blackout drinker. I drank my two Jack Daniels Lynchburg lemonades and he's sipping on his first one. I take his second one and I slam that one down and send him back to the liquor store for more. And in the meantime, I find some guy that I have no idea where I find this guy, and I'm in the shower with him, and my boyfriend comes in and says, Amy, if you ever drink again, I'm going to leave you. And I'm like, what did I do? I didn't remember any of it. I get up, there's, there, I'm covered in puke, I'm laying in the bathtub, he's laying on the floor next to me, there's puke all over my house, and I'm like, okay, I'm never going to do this again. I felt horrible, I'm sure I had alcohol poisoning, and... You know, it wasn't enough for me. It stopped me for a month. And then the next time I drank, I was a blackout drinker every single time. Um, you know, I think that there were a couple times in those periods where if there wasn't enough alcohol, I wouldn't drink. Or I could take a couple of drinks and then drink more when I got home. But I was getting myself into more and more trouble. I was in school. I was um, studying uh, for pre-med. I had this little daughter, I was divorced, I was on my own, and I had an apartment. Like, all this stuff was going really great. But on those weekends, I would start partying, and I would start partying on Friday night, and who knows when it would end. Pretty soon I started missing classes, and all kinds of other crazy stuff was happening. And, um, you know, one weekend I had gone to Maryland to meet the parents 
which was like my biggest nightmare. I never wanted to meet the parents of anybody. As some guy said, I love you and I care about you. I knew that that was going to complicate the way that I was drinking. And so, you know, I told this guy, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to meet your parents, but I decided to go and uh, flew out to Maryland and don't remember anything of the trip. I remember him dropping me off in Washington and um, vaguely remember being in Virginia and ending up back at my apartment and my friend had punched a hole in the wall of my apartment. And I was like, oh, really? So I kicked a hole in the wall of my apartment big enough to walk through. And I don't know where that anger came from. You know, I had been building up this anger for a really long time, and I uh, I took a baseball bat to everything in my apartment. And people were calling um, the police and calling, you know, different doctors and trying to figure out what they were going to do with me. And I ended up in the hospital a couple times that weekend. And next thing you know, I'm I'm on a mission to have the biggest and best party of all time. And I tell my friends, okay, I'm going to buy all the liquor, and I'm probably... This is right before my 20th birthday when this happens. And and so this is January 1st of 1995, and I go to the I go to Burger King and I order one of everything on the menu because I always wanted to do that. I don't think any of the food got eaten, but that's what I did. And I went down and got a whole car full of Bacardi Breezers and who knows what else. And, you know, I decided that I was going to pay for everybody to go to Las Vegas. So I'm telling my friends, get ready. We're going to Las Vegas. I'm paying for everybody. I just got this credit card in the mail. No big deal. I'll pay it off a little bit at a time. And we end up at the airport, and they kick us out because we're all too drunk to get on a plane. So I go back home, and I'm at my house, and I'm just sitting there going, how am I going to get to Vegas? I don't know where the obsession to go to Vegas came from, but that was the mission. And I'm like, okay, time for a road trip. And somewhere in between the airport and my apartment, I had lost all of my friends that were in the car with me. And uh, I decided that I was going to drive to Vegas on my own. I had this little hoopty um, party mobile, the Chevy Chevette with the windshield that I had tried to kick out earlier that day and all the cigarette burns on the headliner and seats. And, you know, it was the party mobile. So... I get in there and I decide that I'm going to drive myself and I get dressed up in my wedding dress and my Doc Martens and put my hair up on top of my head and take off downtown Colorado Springs and I vaguely remember a cop like standing behind my car and I'm like, oh, he'll move and uh, he did, luckily. And I, you know, for a really long time I thought that I was on a high-speed chase downtown Colorado Springs (laughs) And a couple of years ago when I got all the police reports, I found out that it was a low-speed chase. <laughs> I was doing 35 to 40 miles an hour, dodging in and out of traffic, downtown Colorado Springs, in like a 30-mile-an-hour zone, so I really wasn't speeding that bad. But um, I could see these cop cars behind me with their lights on, and I'm like, oh, great, my own personal escort to Las Vegas. <laughs> they, <laughs> they are going to take me there. And I just keep on going. I go to get onto the on-ramp of I-25 in Bijou, and I don't know if my car sold out or what happened from the police reports. There, there are like three different versions, but I don't really remember a lot of it. I know that the police report says that I slammed my car into reverse and slammed into all the cop cars that were behind me and then just jumped out of the car like, here I am, you know. And of course, me, being the drunk that I am for a lot of years, I told that story that... I got arrested in the middle of I-25, okay, it was not the on-ramp, because I really wanted, like, the helicopters and the SWAT team to come out, you know, on on their little lines and pluck me out of the, the picture right there, but that's not what happened, and I ended up getting arrested in and, and my wedding dress, and they put the handcuffs behind me, and... You know, I'd been arrested before, but I didn't really remember having the handcuffs behind me. And what I remembered was that it was really uncomfortable. So I decided to rip the wedding dress off. I'm in the back seat of this cop car and put the handcuffs around the front of me and um, start kicking the window and screaming profanities at the officers. And they opened the door and um, I got maced. Now I'm in the middle of the on-ramp naked with only my Doc Martens on and all the news cameras are there. There's more cops that have come in the meantime and they're macing me and who knows what else they're doing, but I'm fighting and they're fighting and 
they end up hogtying me and throwing me in the back seat of the car on my stomach. And, you know, the next thing I remember after that is waking up in a hospital bed with my hand handcuffed to the to the bed, charcoal down the front of my hospital gown and the officer standing at the door going, you're in big trouble. And I had no clue what I had done. Um, I saw blood on my clothes that were sitting, you know, my wedding dress and everything that was sitting next to the bed. And I'm in a paper gown at this time. And they tell me that I have first degree assault on two police officers and eluding the, the police and a bunch of other charges and that I was going to jail. And when they took me to El Paso County Jail, everybody already knew who I was when I got there because they saw me on news. And I thought I was on primetime news, you know, like night time, 7 o'clock. No, this was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just like these crazy little things that I found out and, you know, doing all this, these police reports and all this stuff to get into prison and jail work. And, you know, while I was sitting in in jail, I, I got out on a PR bond because I really hadn't been in any trouble before. I had been arrested one time before, and um, I ended up going to my neighbor's house and getting rearrested the very next day and spending the next 65 days in solitary confinement. And that time, I lost everything I had on this planet. I lost custody of my daughter. I lost everything I had in my apartment. Um, I lost my scholarship for school. and. You know, every day I'm sitting in that jail cell and everybody there is going, oh, let, let us help you get your daughter back and let us help you do this and let us help you do that. And all I'm doing is thinking about who can I get to come down here and bring me a bottle of Bacardi 151 so I can drink. And, um, you know, I remember every day crossing that, that day off on the calendar thinking about killing myself and drinking. That's all I thought about those whole 65 days. And I remember going to one AA meeting probably the first day that I was there and right before I got locked down and got kicked out of that AA meeting and, you know, for, for being crazy and dancing on the table. And, you know, then after that, it was just like downhill. They, they locked me in a rubber room and put a duct tape to helmet on my head. They didn't know what to do with me. I was crazy. And they let me out, and I did find the person that would bring me that bottle of Bacardi 151, and, and I got drunk before I left that parking lot. I don't remember what I did that day or where I went or or what I did, but I, I can tell you that I didn't try to get custody of my daughter back, and there was a part of me that was like freedom. You know, this is freedom. I never really got to be a kid. I was taking care of my brothers and sisters growing up, and I never really got to have a childhood, and so I stayed drunk every day for the next, you know, year and a half. That was my pursuit. That's all I wanted to do. I just, I just wanted to stay numb, and I remember being at this guy's house one night, and when he said, Amy, let's uh, let's have one last hurrah before you get help because I'm at this time I'm like I'm so desperate I'm suicidal I'm like thinking about killing myself on a real regular basis and I tell him I think I I think I need to get help and I and I don't know what to do and I I think I'm just gonna check myself in somewhere and um, tell him that I'm psychotic and maybe they can put me on some medication or something and just lock me up lock me away from myself and you know I called my mom and my mom said. Amy, did you ever think about going to drug and alcohol rehab? And I said, for what? I don't have a problem. I'm depressed. And, uh, you know, I, I remember that night having my friend go out and buy all of this alcohol and that there was no amount of alcohol on this planet that could have gotten me drunk enough to escape that misery that night. And I remember not feeling drunk that whole that whole night, and that was more scary to me than that time in jail or that time, you know, finding out what I had done the night before, ending up in another state or another country or, you know, all the different places that I had, that I had woken up from all these crazy things that I had done. That was more devastating to me. And, you know, when I called my mom and she said, Amy, if you go to rehab, I'll help you get your daughter back. That's probably the only thing that she could have said to me to get me to go to treatment. I was 21 years old. I pretty much wrecked my life. I, I was on intense probation. I was calling for a color every single day. I got arrested again right before that for aggravated motor vehicle theft, and I was looking at prison time for all the time that they had deferred from, for the probation, and I was scared to death and didn't know what to do, and my aunt said, move to South Dakota, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's perfect. You know, if I move to South Dakota, there won't be the same people there. It'll be perfect. 
So I moved to South Dakota, and it was no different in South Dakota than it was in Colorado. And um, within a few months, I moved back to Colorado, miserable and depressed. And I and my mom said, once again, I'll help you go to treatment, and I'll help you get your daughter back. And so I did. And she said, oh, I found this place. It's a six-week program. So if you go in there, you know, you graduate in six weeks, and everything will be great. And I walk in the front door of this place, and they go, oh, no, sorry, it's a six-month program. And I walk right back out the front door. I was like, I'm not doing six months. That's ridiculous. I don't need six months of treatment. I barely drank for three years. You know, I really didn't even do anything. And, uh, you know, but I didn't hear anybody else telling the same stories that I was telling. So I wasn't going to tell my crazy stories and let everybody else know how psychotic I was. So I went into treatment, and, you know, I remember being in there and being scared to death and, and uh, not really doing anything that they were talking about. It was a Christian treatment center, and, you know, they want to teach you how to be a soldier for the Salvation Army, and that was their goal. And my goal was just not to feel the same way that I was feeling anymore. And I didn't know how to get out of that. I uh, I did all these workbooks that they had in there and, you know, started working these, like, half-Christian, half big book steps, I guess. I don't really know what it was, but, you know, so I, I went through all these workbooks and I had this this boyfriend at the time that, you know, we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff on the outside and he wasn't showing up for our weekend visits and, you know, he'd be too drunk to come pick me up and he was the love of my life. Like, he was going to fix me. When I got out, we are going to get married and we're going to have this whole brand new life together. And, you know, while I was in treatment, I... The last couple months that I was there, I got pregnant with my second daughter. Um, not too long after I got pregnant, I told him that I was pregnant, and when we got out, you know, we're going to have a brand new life together. And he said, you know what, I don't want to have kids. And, you know, I remember being in treatment, they told me to write down the five things that I thought that I would drink over. And that was one of the things that I thought I would drink over, is losing him or, you know, losing my other daughter or, you know, like, a, I don't even know what else was on my list. And so I, you know, this was right after I graduated from treatment, and I'm, I'm out, and I'm living with my sponsor that I had met while I was in Salvation Army, and her sponsor said, I didn't tell you to let her live with you, <laughs> and here I am, I'm living with her, and my friend calls me, the friend that I was living with before I went into treatment, and he said, you know, Amy, you just got done with six months of treatment, a glass of wine would be good for the baby. I was like, yeah, a glass of wine would be good for the baby, I heard that everywhere. I just got out of all this treatment. I know everything that there is to know about alcoholism. And I really thought with everything in me that I could go out that night to that bar and listen to some live music and have one glass of wine to take the edge off. And I remember them pouring that pink liquid into that glass, and I remember saying to myself that I was only going to have one because I had to do it for this unborn baby inside of me. And I don't remember anything about that night after that, that one drink. And I drank myself into a blackout and ended up in a hotel room with some dude I didn't know. And I was, uh, when I woke up the next day, you know, I just started to cry. I picked my clothes up off the floor and walked out of that room. I had no idea where I was or where my car was. And I said, really, Amy, this is, this is how you're going to live your life. This is how you're going to, this is how you're going to end up. You're going to lose another baby as a result of your drinking. And I'd remembered my counselor in Salvation Army telling me that if I went up to Vitality, that these people, these old guys at Vitality, would wrap their arms around me and that they would love me until I could love myself. And I'd been up there a few times, but I didn't really like it. I was like, oh, my God, I'm 21. I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life, these old people and smoky rooms. And, you know, like it's not what I'm used to and it's not what I want to do. And, um, you know, I remembered her being the, the first person ever that got through to me, the first person ever that um, cared about me and believed in me. And while I was in treatment, she knew. I don't know. I don't know what it was that she knew, but she knew I was going to make it. And I walked up to Vitality that day, and, and I immediately picked up my six-month kiss because, you know, I didn't want anybody to know that I drank. And I just, everybody knew I got out of treatment, so, you know, and I, I hid that drunk for the next nine years of my sobriety. Um, I remember going to that lady's birthday, and um, her name is Terry, and I went to her birthday one night, and she was celebrating, like, 20, 25 years sober, 
and I walked into her birthday, and she's like, what's wrong? And I said, you know, I never told you this, and, you know, I got the opportunity to tell her that day what I had done. And I was sure that if I told all these people that I was so close to that I drank myself into a blackout while I was pregnant, that they wouldn't like me anymore, that they'd kick me out. And she had given me my nine-year chip. And, you know, I pulled that nine-year chip out of my, my purse, and, and I gave it back to her. And I told her that I didn't want to celebrate a fraudulent date anymore. And um, that was the day that I changed my sobriety date. And my sobriety date is 11-18 of 1996. Um, that day is the day that changed my sobriety forever. That was the day that I finally got to be honest. Um, it was the day where I felt like God, you know, kind of like dropped the ladder out of the sky and let it down on me so that I could actually feel that connection that everybody had talked about. I was like, oh, my God, you know, like this was a total, total different deal. And, you know, I was struggling in the program. I had struggled with sponsors throughout all those years. And, you know, that counselor from Salvation Army, I asked her for those first nine years to be my sponsor, and she always said no. And I couldn't understand why she always said no to me. And, you know, finally after I changed my sobriety date, she said yes. And, um, you know, I sat down with her, and the thing that I found out is that I could be honest with her about that thing, but I couldn't be honest with her about a lot of the other things that I was doing in my sobriety. And, um, you know, doing those things in my sobriety, I was like, well, at least when I was drunk, I could justify a lot of the things that I was doing because I could say, well, I was drunk. <laughs> but doing some of this stuff sober was really painful, and, and I felt like I had to be secretive and... You know, so here I am, I'm 10 years sober, and, and I'm secretive, and I'm not telling anybody everything, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm fatally fine, and I'm living on the crumbs of what Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer, and, you know, I have this little old man in, at Vitality that I've just, you know, loved my first 10 years, and he loved me, and, you know, he was like a dad to me. He, uh, when I was four years sober, he gave me away when I got married. And he was gentle and he was kind and, and he always had a smile for me and, and he was a person that I could look up to, but I couldn't be honest with him either. And, you know, throughout those first 10 years, he was teaching me about the steps in AA without teaching me about the steps in AA, you know, giving me these little, these little tiny tidbits of what this program had to offer because growing up in a religious home like I did and being religiously abused, I didn't want anything to do with the, with the God thing. And so there were a lot of steps that I definitely wasn't going to do. And, you know, that third step was one of the biggest ones. And the second step, I didn't see that until way later down the line because I didn't want anybody telling me that I was crazy. And I wasn't going to tell anybody all my secrets. And there were some things that I was going to take to the grave. And I can tell you that's the story that I already told you tonight. It was not a story I was telling people in meetings. I was not telling anybody any of that stuff that happened. And I had a lot of old-timers coming up to me saying, oh, we drank more than you even spilled on your tie. <laughs> and, you know, telling me that I was too young to be an alcoholic. And I was 22, and, and I knew my life was over if I started drinking again. And, you know, I really believe that part in the book that talks about the grace of God, you know, that the grace of God did keep me sober. Fear and the grace of God are the two things that really kept me sober for all those years and doing a little bit of the work here and there. An old timer would approach me and say, Amy, you need to do a fourth and fifth step or you're going to die. And I'm like, really? Is it really that dramatic? Do we really have to be that dramatic about it? And, you know, I would sit down and, and I would write a fourth step. And, you know, for a really long time, I used an old fourth step that I had written I don't even know when I wrote it or if I even fist-stepped it with anybody, but it was an old fist-step that I didn't want to add to because I wasn't going to tell anybody all that stuff I was doing while I was sober. And there were a lot of things that I just like, oh, I don't really need to put that on there. Or I don't need to put that on there. And So I was using this old inventory with everybody that would pressure me into, you know, doing a fist-step. And, you know, what I can tell you is that it gave me a little bit of relief for a little while and it was, you know, kind of like all those pleasure-seeking things that I was doing in sobriety, like 
looking for men and and uh, using sugar and using processes and all kinds of other things that I was using in order to make myself feel better. All these pleasure things, all these things outside of myself. I needed people validating me. I needed people telling me what I could do and, uh, you know, how great I was. And, um, you know, what I realized after doing that last fifth step, you know, this lady came to me one day and I was at a meeting at Salvation Army and she said, Amy, um, have you ever done a fourth and fifth step? And I was probably five years sober when I did my first uh, fourth and fifth step. And she said, um, you know, you need to do this right now. And I said, what? You're not even going to say hi to me? I haven't seen you in, you know, four years since you gradu graduated from Salvation Army. You're just going to tell me that I have to be at your house on Saturday with this fifth step done? I didn't even ask her. I didn't ask her to help me. And, you know, that lady saved my life that night. And I, I remember leaving her house feeling like the weight of the world had been lifted off of my shoulders. And she was a very kind woman, and she was uh, very spiritual. And and she helped me walk through some things that I wasn't able to tell anybody else. You know, I was able to get honest with that woman that night, and I was able to tell her some of the things that I was doing in my sobriety that were blocking me off from the sunlight of the Spirit and... She said, okay, Amy, now when you get home, you need to do this hour of meditation. And I'm like, meditation? Like, I've never done meditation. How do you do meditation? And what does it look like? And she goes, you'll figure it out. Pull down your book from the shelf and look at that. Look at that page that talks about this. And, um, you know, on my, on my drive home from her house to my house, it was exactly one hour. And I just started talking to this thing that I didn't believe in in the car and saying, I don't know what I just did. I, you know, I, I feel exhausted. And this rainstorm came. And, you know, this rainstorm that came, it, it just felt like it washed away all that stuff that I'd been carrying around for so many years. And um, that was really the first experience that I ever had with meditation. And, you know, I didn't do it the way that I would do it today, but it was the only way that I knew how. And... Um, you know, I got home, and the next day I went to Vitality, and everybody out there said, God, Amy, you look different. Um, like, your eyes are shinier. And I'm like, yeah, the grass is greener, and the sun shines brighter, and I don't know what. Everybody's nicer to me, and they were like, everybody else around you hasn't changed. You've changed. And, you know, that that took effect for a little while, and it, you know, soon wore off. And, you know, for those years that I was doing piecemeal Alcoholics Anonymous, I lived on the crumbs of what this program has to offer. And at 10 years sober, that little old man that I loved so much that gave me away when I got married at four years sober died. And, you know, I didn't really realize that I had made him my higher power. If somebody's sitting in the chair next to him, I was like, you are going to move because that is my chair. And I had to be next to him. It didn't matter if he talked to me or, if, you know, if he even looked my direction, but I needed to be near him. And when he died, I was devastated. And, you know, by this time I have a third daughter and, you know, I have my first daughter back in my life and I'm married and I have, you know, this really nice house and I have this really nice car and it didn't matter. I was so empty inside and, you know, I wanted to kill myself more than anything. And I'm driving to meetings and I'm thinking about killing myself and I'm thinking about running into oncoming traffic and I can't think of a different way to live my life. And I'm like, God, from the outside, everybody would want what I have. They would want this life, and how could I kill myself knowing that I have these three little girls that need me? And I couldn't think about anything else. And one day I was, you know, um, I was at home, and I ended up getting this really bad headache, and I went to the doctor, and they gave me a muscle relaxer, and it made it worse. And I ended up back in the emergency room and found out that I had stress-induced meningitis from not eating, not sleeping, um, and crying for, you know, a month. And so after that, you know, after I um, got better from meningitis, it took like six weeks to get better from that. And, you know, luckily I didn't get hooked on all the pain pills that they put me on during during that whole period of time. I went back up to Vitality, and I'm sitting at a noon meeting, and I'm still thinking about killing myself, and, and I don't know that there's any relief for it. I'm like, I, I guess it's just, you know, like I'm just doomed for the rest of my life. I'm just going to think about killing myself, and that's just, my lot in life and you know I'm bawling my eyes out at this noon meeting and my friend elbows me in the side and he said Amy go ask that girl to be your sponsor 
she has a similar story to you. And I'm like, yeah, right. Nobody has a similar story to me. You know, I'm unique. Nobody understands me. Nobody even knows. And, you know, she caught me out of the corner of her eyes. She was, like, surrounded by all these girls. And I'm like, she doesn't have time for me. And she said, Amy, do you need to talk? And I said, yes. And, you know, I sat in her car with her for the next five hours, and I talked and cried, and she listened. And she said, Amy, on Saturday, you're going to come over to my house, and we're going to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're going to do the steps, and it's going to give you relief. And I'm like, whatever. That is a boring book. That is one boring book. I am not reading that book. (laughs) And, you know, after that, that five hours sitting in her car that day, it was a Wednesday at noon, I came over to her house on Saturday, and I sat down with her for the next three hours, and I read out of the big book. And I'd never seen it the way that she made it seem. She she brought it to life, and she lit that book up for me. And she she read every single word out of that book and changed to where it said God to higher power so that I could hear it. And, you know, walking through this, walking through that book with her and getting to the preface and her going, okay, when you get to the preface, we've got these three questions that are at the bottom of the preface. You highlight those three questions and start reading those stories in the back of the book, and your job is to look for the similarities, not the differences. She goes, Amy, you've been terminally unique this whole 10 years. And, and she goes, you know, you've made Jim your higher power, and I didn't realize it till the day that she told me that, that I had made Jim my higher power. And she said, that's okay, Amy. It's okay for him to be your higher power. And, you know, I, I sat in her office many a day crying about that little old man that I loved so much, so dearly. And... um you know, whenever he would hold my hands, he would instantly warm them. And, and she said, okay, now you've got, you know, part of this first step down. I want you to start telling me about your drinking. And I'm like, why? She's like drilling me about how much I drank and what I thought about before and, you know, what was going on inside me after I drank. And I'm like, what are you doing? You don't believe me that I'm an alcoholic? And she goes, well, I'm not taking you through the steps unless I'm convinced. Because it says in working with others, being convinced, then we commence with the steps. And and I was like, oh, so if you're trying to be convinced that I am an alcoholic, then I might be able to convince you that I'm not. And so, you know, I told her these stories, and she's like, oh, no, I don't need any convincing that you're not. And she proceeded with the steps with me, and she told me that I got to pick my own conception of a higher power. And that was very foreign to me because I was brought up very religious. I was brought up in church. You know, you had to believe a certain way. There's only one right way. And those are all these old beliefs that I had. And I was, you know, not going to think that this lady could just come in and just change everything just like that. You know, I've been struggling with this God thing the whole time. And I wouldn't say God at the beginning of the meetings. And I would walk out if somebody would say Lord or Savior or, you know, if they would quote a scripture verse. I would definitely be out of the room and into the bathroom. And she said, Amy, I just want you to try it. I want you to try writing down all the things that you would want in a higher power. And so this is the list that I wrote. And I've I've added lots to it since then. But I said warm fuzzies, you know, that, that goosebump feeling that you get on your arms whenever somebody says something that really relates to you. It's creative and it's loving and it's quick to forgive. It's patient. It's forgiving. So that must have been pretty important if I put it twice. It's comforting. It's intuition. It's that gut feeling. It's blacky smile. It's present. It's accepting. It's not punishing. It's compassionate. It's not judgmental. It's kind. It's truth. It's overwhelming gratitude. He has my back. It's power, it's peace, it's happiness, it's sense of direction, it's Jim, it's Grandma, it's Blackie, it's my dad. And it's just as much as a feeling for a friend, like it says on page 55 of the book. And ultimately, it's love. And so I started out with this conception of my higher power, and and she said, Amy, that's fine, you know, because when I... When I first started when I first started writing that it was just like Jim and my grandma and warm fuzzies and you know the forgiving part and that was about it. And you know I I came to all the rest of this after working the process of the steps and you know I got to step 3 and we were in her office and she said I told her when we first started working together I'm never going to get on my knees I can guarantee you that. And she said Amy are you ready to say the third step prayer? And she said Will you get on your knees with me in my office? And is it okay for me to say the word God? 
and I and I got down on my knees and I held her hands in front of me and I got on my knees in her office and for the first time in my life I felt this overwhelming sense of peace that came over me and I felt like for the first time that everything was going to be okay no matter what happened and I was like trying to think of imagine all these horrible things that could happen and it still didn't touch that peace that I had inside of me you know I did the fourth step with her and and she taught me a different way to do it than I had done it before because she taught me right out of the big book and she also brought out the grouch and the brainstorm and had me write down all my actions that I took in anger and look at what a monster I become as a result of one thing that somebody else does and you know that showed me like this whole big huge lie that I was believing about myself and how much I had been surviving instead of living in my sobriety and you know I got to fist step that with her and and she was the first person on this planet that knew everything about me. You know, before I did, like, little pieces of the puzzle here and here and here. And I was scared to death that these people would get into the same room and put this puzzle together and be able to see who I really was. And, you know, this woman put that puzzle together, and, and she absolutely saved my life by working the process of the steps with me. And she spent five hours a week with me, and sometimes more. And, you know, she, she showed me how to do six and seven, and... She showed me that, you know, those character defects aren't something that are just going to fly off your back and you're going to be pure as snow, that, you know, these are things that you have to be aware of. These are things that are going to come up in your life and that, that you're going to have to look at these things over and over and that you might have to use that God box that you, that you um, made in step three and start putting some of those things in the God box because I was still really struggling with this whole prayer thing and the meditation and, you know, all this God stuff and... So here I am, six and seven, and I'm doing the, I'm writing down my character defects, and, you know, I'm probably beating myself up a little because I have, like, pages and pages and pages, and she goes, yeah, that's not necessary to beat yourself up, and we get to the step eight, and she has me write down a list, and, you know, I know how this works. I've been around the program long enough to know that if I put it on the list, I'll probably have to make amends to them. So, you know, I only put down the ones that I think I'm going to have to make amends to, and she's like, no, you write down all the names on that list. And then we'll decide together which ones you owe amends to. And, you know, there are still some names on that list that I haven't been able to, to make right the wrong. And, you know, she really beat that into my head that this book tells us about, you know, that we make right the wrong, that we don't go in and ask them what, what can we do to make it right. It says that we have the sincere desire to right the wrong and that an amends is a change in behavior and that I get to go in there and tell somebody that what my old behavior used to be and what my new behavior is now and how I'm going to right that wrong. So one of the amends that I have on this list is from stealing that car. So I steal this guy's car and um, I'm drunk. It's for my 21st birthday and I, I take his car and I total it. Brand new Dodge Stealth. Still has the temporary tags in the back window. And he calls me on his car phone. That's how long ago it was. And I answer and go, no, you have the wrong number. This is an Amy click. And, you know, needless to say, I have no clue how I'm going to make amends for this wrecked car that I have. And so I start on this um, this prayer path, you know. And, and in this eight-step list, it tells us that we get to go to people on a spiritual or a business basis and, you know, I figure this guy's probably not very spiritual, so I'm going to go to him on a business basis and make payment arrangements, however I can do this. And so that's what I set out to do. And after a lot of prayer, this is what I write down on the piece of paper that, you know, that I'm willing to pay for this car in, it, in its entirety if that's what I have to do. And uh, so I go on this mission, and I try to find him. I know his name, and I've known, known his name my whole sobriety and never been willing to do it. And so I started looking for him, and... You know, it's really crazy. A couple weeks after I start looking for him, I drive to Colorado Springs, which I hadn't been to his office in 16 years, drove right there. And I am directionally challenged, okay? I use a navigator everywhere I go. I don't know where I'm going without it. And I drive right to his office. And I walk in, and he no longer works there. And, you know, a week later after that, this girl finds me on Facebook and says, uh, did you ever find Greg? Did you ever hear what happened to Greg? And I'm like, no, I never heard about Greg and she said Google him. So I get on Google and I Google this guy and I find out that he's one of America's most wanted. And uh, you know, I'm like, okay, now how do you make amends to one of America's most wanted? I was like, well, there is a $150,000 reward. So, you know, that'd be plenty to pay off the car, 
get the rewards, come back and have plenty of money for a car of my own, you know, like two for one kind of deal, and, you know, that, that hasn't happened, and, you know, he's still not caught, but, you know, those were some of the amends, and, you know, there was an amend that I made a few months ago, and, and I got to find this guy that, um, that I felt guilty for, for, you know, all of my sobriety, I felt guilty this guy had, um, let me live with him out of the kindness of his heart, and, he um, was trying to help me out, which at the time I didn't know. I thought that he was, you know, drinking just like I was, and all this crazy stuff happened. And anyway, he ended up kicking me out of his apartment, and I come, I come back one day, and my box of belongings that was probably about this big was sitting on the front porch, and I'm like, oh, that's weird, you know. But I'd, I'd blown through plenty of people, and you know, there was some damage done to his apartment, and and I had. Um, I don't know, one day his last name popped into my head. I had always known his first name, but I couldn't ever remember his last name. And, you know, a few months ago I found him on Facebook and I and I messaged him and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I lived with you back in 1995. And, of course, he remembered <laughs> me. And uh, he said, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, there wasn't one person that wanted to be around me anymore. You know, I had destroyed every person in my past. I was definitely the tornado roaring through the lives of other people. And I got to sit down with this man at lunch, and, and I got to tell him about my life and, and how I've been sober for the last 16 years. And I got to make amends to him for the damage that was done. And, you know, what's really crazy is that he's called me you know, every week since that amends a few months ago. And he was asking me one day about a relationship problem or something that he was having, and I got to walk him through a four-step. Last night, he went to his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, I'm sitting in the meeting, and I'm going, man, you know, how does this happen? How does this happen for me that I get to be a person that gets to help somebody else that... I pretty much destroyed his life back then. And I was talking to one of my sponsees today, and I was telling her that, you know, how grateful I am that I get to do the things that I get to do. You know, thank you so much for asking me to talk for you, Jeff, and, you know, come out here and, and get to be a part of this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous because this has absolutely saved my life. In the last six years, after I've done the process of the steps, I can tell you that, my life has been amazing, that I get to work a 10-step on a regular basis and an 11th step, and that I'm extremely involved in service, and I love it. And, you know, I'm the hospitality chair for the state convention and kind of got thrown into that after I spoke um, one time in Parker. And um, I'm the CPC chair for our district, and I get to go in and take these meetings into nurses and medical students and um, it's been a real passion of mine, something that I thought I would never, ever want to do. But, you know, I get to go in there and do this stuff. And, you know, my real passion these days is going into the jails and prisons. And, you know, I get to go back to the jail and I get to talk to these girls and I get to to work them through the steps. And, you know, I have this girl that I started working with a couple of years ago and I took her through the steps while she was in jail. And there would be all these other girls over here having their own meeting and I'd be over here on this side of the room fist-stepping with her and, you know, this girl started taking other people in the jail through the steps, and she would come in, and all these little girls that were in the pod with her would come in with their first step all written out and be like, we want to tell you about our first step. And so, like, every week it was like a step meeting, and it and it started growing and growing, and pretty soon everybody in the pod was coming, whether they were alcoholic or not. They just wanted to see what was going on in this meeting that had changed everybody. The guards were going, you guys are way too happy to be in jail. And, you know, because of her, she was... She was going to Denver Women's, and, you know, uh, I was like, well, I'm going to try to see if I can get into Denver Women's so I can continue to sponsor this girl. And so I do all the paperwork, and this is where I find out all the, the little, you know, differences that are the truth in my story and what I thought was in my story. And, you know, I start reading all this other crazy stuff, and um, the sergeant from the jail calls me, and he goes, Amy, you left some stuff out of your paperwork. And I'm like, really? Like what? And he's like, you have a DUI? 
like, I never knew I had a DUI. Here I am, like, 12 years sober, and I find out that I have a DUI and, you know, all kinds of other stuff that I didn't write down. And I said, well, I really wasn't trying to hide anything from you. I just really didn't know about it. And he goes, what? You know, normal people don't think that that's, <laughs> that's normal <laughs> for you not to remember what you did or what you got in trouble for. And, you know, I uh, I did all the paperwork for the prison, did the eight-hour training, and as soon as I was approved to go into the prison, they transferred her to La Vista Prison, which is in Pueblo, which is, you know, like five hours from my house. And I'm like, that's fine. I'll still go in there. And they have a one-on-one -on -one AA sponsorship program. And so she said, I'm going to set you up with a couple of a couple of different women. And um, I went in there. I talked to this girl, the very first girl that I was going to sponsor. And I'm like, you tell me a little bit about your story, and I'll tell you a little bit about my story. And, you know, I told her my story first. And she went from doing this across the table to, you know, just a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more relaxed to very relaxed. And, you know, this lady, she told me a story about how she had, she's given me permission to tell you her story as well. And she told me a story about how she had gotten drunk and ran over this guy while, while she was drunk and killed him and stabbed another guy while he was in her car. She went to prison when she's 23. She's turning 31 this week. And last week we read page 164 of the big book, you know, and I was like looking at all the names that I have written in my book, and there's not very many that make it to page 164, I can tell you that, you know. A lot of them think that they're done when you get work, get to working with others. They're like, yep, done with the steps. You know, they don't realize that the book goes to page 164, apparently. And so, you know, we just started the 12 and 12, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure if that's the path we're going to take, but, you know, she wants to keep working with me, and we have to be doing something in order to be working in that room together. And I have another girl that only has a few months in prison, and I get to work with her, and, and I have a girl on a waiting list that came from Castle Rock Jail to to Denver Women's. And, you know, the, the lady that works out at the prison said, Amy, you know, it's a huge testament when somebody comes out here and begs for you to be their sponsor. And I'm like, you know, before I got here, there was nobody begging to be around me. They were begging for me to go away. And today I have those unique and priceless friendships that only this program can give me as a result of working the process of the steps. I attract the people that I want to be around today. Jeff, Dick, Amy, Marie, you know, Aaron, and, you know, other people in my life that are those unique and priceless friends that have worked the process of the steps that can help me do this self-appraisal that I need help with because it says in the big book that a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. And, you know, my life today is absolutely amazing, and I want to close with reading you guys my favorite promise, which is on page 124. As this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problems. We think each family which has not been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it shouldn't be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we are given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession that you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And you know, um, my oldest daughter, this is probably one of the most common questions that I get is how my oldest daughter is, and I never did get custody of that kiddo back. Um, she's a huge part of my life today. She just turned 22 in February, and um, she was in a head-on collision when I was 15 years sober, and... Um, she was a few months pregnant with my, my little grandson, and she ended up losing the baby a month later, and she's going to be going through another surgery here on the 12th to, to fix her uh, shattered femur. And, um, you know, my life has been absolutely amazing. I have this, I have this wonderful life that I have today, and, and I have a husband that, you know, loves me and supports everything that I do in Alcoholics Anonymous, even being away all night on Saturday night. And... There was a time that it wasn't like that. You know, he used to tell me, really, you got to go to another meeting? How come you help these people out so much? And, you know, you only drank for three years. Why couldn't you just go to meetings for three years? And he would tell me stuff like, celebrating your sobriety day is like celebrating Tuesday. 
And, you know, it just crushed me. It crushed me every time that he said it. And, you know, a couple of years ago we were really struggling, and I told him that, that I wanted a divorce. And he said, what can I do to make it right? And I said, you can pack your stuff and leave. And every day he would come home, and I could tell he'd been crying. And I've never seen this man cry. I've been with him for a lot of years since I was one year sober. And um, I could tell that he'd been crying all day long, and he'd come home and he'd say to me, what can I do to make it right? And I would tell him, pack your stuff and leave. I'm done. Like, this is over. I've already talked to the marriage counseling. You know, the Christmas ornaments are split in my head. You know, like, you got your box and I got my box. And, you know, the, the weekend visitations are all out there in my head. And I know how I'm going to take care of myself. And, um, you know, one day he came home and I could tell he'd been crying. And, and um, he had been calling me all day and I wasn't answering his calls. And I was, I was done. I had one foot out the door. And he came in and he said, Amy, what can I do to make it right? And I said, you could go to Al-Anon. He went to Al-Anon, even though I didn't think it was for him. And I wasn't drinking when I met him, but he grew up in an alcoholic home as well. He went to meetings like his life depended on it. He got a sponsor and he worked the steps. And within a couple of short months, we went to our first AA convention together. And we're walking out of one of the meetings that we went to together. I think it was an Al-Anon speaker. And he put his arm around me and he said, Amy, I think it's time to start celebrating Tuesday. Oh. That was a couple of years ago. Our life together still has problems, of course. But, you know, it's been an amazing journey with him being in the program and understanding what I'm going through now. And I get, we get to talk program together. And... I stood out in the parking lot and did the third step prayer with him before I came in here and talked to you guys. And he said that my 14-year-old daughter said that I was going to be the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, today, one of the greatest gifts that I have is to be able to get up here and share a message of hope. So if you're struggling, I, I pray that you'll come talk to me after the meeting. You know, I have all the time in the world. I'll give you my phone number. I will make time for you. Um, you know, my God definitely has a sense of humor as well, which is not on there, which I should add, because I always say this at the end. But, um, my God has a sense of humor in the fact that the man that I married is a cop. <clears throat> that is all. <laughs> Oh.